Good morning, everybody. Dr. Salazar is away on some well-deserved PTO, and it's my privilege today to introduce today's Grand Rounds. So we'll start by introducing Dr. Jeffrey Himes. So after graduating magna cum laude from Brandeis University, he obtained his medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, and then completed both his pediatric residency and GI fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital. He has been with the University of Connecticut since 1980 and Connecticut Children's since we opened our doors 25 years ago. And he became the first and continues to be the head of the department of digestive diseases, hepatology, and nutrition. He is a world-renowned expert and researcher in inflammatory bowel disease and functional gastric disorders. He is the editor of the primary textbook, Pediatric Gastrointestinal Disease Pathophysiology Diagnosis and Management, which just published its sixth edition. He has also published hundreds of articles and was awarded the Murray Davidson Award by the American Academy of Pediatrics as an outstanding physician, teacher, and clinical researcher. So Dr. Himes will be introducing our speaker now. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Andrea. It really is my pleasure uh, to introduce uh, today's Grand Round speaker, Brad Gerson. So Brad is a clinical psychologist who joined our GI department in 2015. Uh, he was raised uh, in Plainview, Plainview, New York, also known as Long Island. Um, and I believe the mascot for your high school, Brad, I looked it up, was the Hawks. I hope I didn't mess that up. Um, he uh, graduated from Stony Brook University and then received his master's and PhD from Fordham University. Uh, he did a lot of his clinical training at several prestigious New York hospitals. Um, and then before he joined us, spent a year as a postdoctoral fellow at the Yale Child Study Center. I have to say that on my wish list for my department, literally for many, many years, was having a GI psychologist embedded with us and, and Brad was a dream come true for us. He has made a profound impact on the quality and dimensions of care that we provide. And I suspect has helped care for many of the patients that you uh, take care of as well. Uh, in this last very difficult year with the pandemic, mental health issues, as you know, have been paramount and Brad has been sort of our Tony Fauci of psychology. So we are very indebted to him. His topic today uh, is entitled Gut Feelings, an update on the clinical application of the gut-brain microbiome axis. Brad, please. Thank you very much, Dr. Himes. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, the comparison to Dr. Fauci is uh, greatly appreciated. And, and look, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, why not? Uh, the small correction that, I'll, that I will make is, uh, in fact, my high school was Beth Page, in spite of my Plainview mailing address. Uh, so it's the Golden Eagles. I'm not sure what would happen if a Golden Eagle went against a hawk. Uh, but we don't need to conjecture about that today. I'm very, very pleased to be with you. Uh, thank you so much for that introduction and thank you to the Continuing Med Medical Education Committee for having me join uh, with you today. So a little bit of an overview of what we'll be talking about today during this presentation. Uh, this is a topic that is very near and dear to our heart and I think will cross cover many of the domains and the patients that you all work with in our institution as well as in the broader community. 
some general disclosures. I have nothing to declare in terms of conflicts of interest, but in case you are uh, still eating your breakfast, uh, I will declare that there's going to be a lot of poop talk in this conversation. So prepare accordingly. And if you're listening with any young children around, I'll just say that a couple more times for fun. Poop, poop, poop. Okay, great. Uh, so what we will be talking about today is the role of the gut-brain microbiome access. Uh, it's common medical and behavioral manifestations, as well as the psychiatric comorbidities that exist within that context, uh, specific interventions that we do know improve patient outcomes quite well uh, by targeting the gut-brain access directly. We'll be clarifying the role of mental health and psychosocial supports within the system more broadly, and also communicating some broad recommendations about how to actually talk with families about the recommendations for this as part of their care. So if we're all ready for the ride, let's take a trip to Poop World. Uh, I promise you uh, that this is going to be the, the last and only presentation of the poop emoji. It's actually been quite great from a pediatric GI perspective these past few years. It's very on brand for us. Uh, but if we're all ready, um, this is, if I can take a side note, this is the greatest slide I've ever created in my career. Uh, so it, it very well may be all downhill from here if you want to just turn out, uh, tune out from now, but, but we can move on and, and buckle up. So a little bit of some history about the gut-brain connection. This is not a new concept, right? Many of you may think like we've known this for, for generations of medicine, right? This is one of the earliest concepts discussed by Hippocrates and, and early medical thinkers and philosophers. This dichotomy of the gut versus the mind, the brain versus the body and understanding kind of that integration together. So even though this has been around for quite some time, I am not going to be uh, repurposing some old animations and polishing them up and delivering you some old stuff. I'm gonna be giving you some updated uh, research and findings related to this. And in particular, we're all familiar with this sensation, right? We understand what it's like to have these gut feelings. Since a very young age, you can know what it's like to have the sensation of butterflies in your stomach when you're getting ready to give a talk or have an exam or do a new presentation like this. Uh, but what's specifically interesting is the way that that actually is processing. And uh, I can tell you with quite certainty uh, that I remember exactly what I was feeling uh, that time that I jumped out of this airplane. And I can assure you the main thought I had was why on earth would the skydiving company uh, repurpose fluorescent yellow suits? Because I was really concerned what was gonna happen as I jumped out of there. And this was a clear manifestation of what happens between the gut and the brain. We know emotions are connected to bodily sensations and we know bodily sensations affect our emotions. And this is not an incredible task of science. However, we also are appreciating that chronic digestive disorders, which are strongly implicated in this process, are a huge, huge concern. So moving over to the seriousness of all of these problems and these chronic conditions, this costs about hundreds of billions of dollars each year within our healthcare system chronic GI conditions. And this includes both the previously conceptualized kind of main organic presentations of GI disorders, as well as disorders of gut-brain interaction, otherwise known as functional GI conditions. We appreciate that chronic medical illness, regardless of the body system involved, has a high level of psychosocial overlap. So naturally, the discussion about the integration between the gut and the brain for all of our body parts is a highly relevant discussion. The degree of impact on 
uh, family stress on lost time at work of lost educational time for children and families cannot be overstated and it is a profound effect on the longevity of these patients. We also recognize that patients with these conditions have a very, very high overutilization of our healthcare system because sometimes these connections between the gut and the brain are just not as well understood as we'd like so to experience. An interesting finding also that bears out in repeated studies is that children and adolescents who experience chronic GI conditions, particularly those of disorders of gut-brain interaction during childhood with increasing impairment, are more likely to have this impairment continue with them into young adulthood and adulthood throughout their life. And we're also learning then may continually pass that on to their children as well. And the implications for research are quite profound for this in this area. So diving a little bit more into kind of the historical understanding of these conditions and how they presented themselves, what we have to appreciate is there's always been this discussion of which comes first. When children are presenting with GI conditions that overlap with psychosocial presentations, is it the gut, is it the brain? Did this come first or did that come first? And some common assumptions of how this bears out in a regular pediatric evaluation might be something like this. So if you're having GI presentations that are not frequently easily addressed or understood from a common workup, you'll do your normal evaluation, and then you may get reassuring results, which for all purposes is actually quite fantastic. We, we hope that blood, blood results, stool tests, uh, imaging scans, we hope that those come up negative, right? We don't want our children to be experiencing unnecessary sickness. However, there's this psychological uh, and physiological disconnect that occurs when complaints and physical symptoms continue to persist, even if we're not able to find a quick and convenient expectational and answer for it, what ends up happening is people will have more complaints that follow that. So then we'll do some more tests and those will maybe still come up reassuring and normal. But unfortunately, there's still a functional impairment that happens. And then we end up getting more phone calls. There's more family stress, more physician stress, and general confusion about this. And what ends up happening from sometimes from that is a referral to a mental health provider. And then there's the strong disconnect between physician and family in terms of the etiology of the symptoms. We have seen in many studies that families, and this is not because they're seeking medicalization for their kids, but they're hoping for reassurance. They're hoping for clarity. They're actually looking sometimes to see that that MyChart test result come back with something, right? Just something that can explain why they've been experiencing what they've been noticing in their body because of the functioning impairment has been so profound. This is not from a point of seeking additional medical illness for their child, of course, is from the place of wanting to give them comfort and relief of the symptoms that they've had. So this is a strong disconnect. And unfortunately, this current biomedical model that still permeates much of our culture inadvertently sets up a little bit of a trap. And when we're taking this dualist approach, it becomes this mind or body discussion. And this assumes inadvertently, even if we're not saying this, 
that if there's no biological reason found for symptoms, then the problem must be caused by the mind, right? This is the either or situation. And the problem with this model, in addition to that, it can just be unfortunately invalidating for a lot of patients and families, is that it's not actually supported by evidence. And we're understanding that particularly in many organic presentations like inflammatory bowel disease, GERD, eosinophilic esophagitis, motility changes, these can be flared and exacerbated even when disease severity is not actually active. So we know patients with inflammatory bowel disease may experience symptoms consistent with the flare, even if we measure that their disease activity is not active at that time. And what happens when we take this all or nothing kind of uh, brain-gut dichotomy, it derails the family buy-in for appreciating the role for psychosocial support. So instead, what we've evolved to in the field is taking more of a psychosocial approach to things a biopsychosocial approach to things, rather. And this is a discussion of incorporating biological factors, psychological factors, and social factors, and having them all interconnect in a systemic pattern like this. And this is not a new model, right? This has been discussed uh, very in depth in grand rounds in the past. Uh, this is incorporated into the way do we deliver care at Connecticut Children's across multiple divisions is appreciating the role of all of these variables, recognizing that we are rejecting this separation between the body and the mind. And in fact, we're appreciating that health and disease should be conceptualized within a broader system as a whole and that all disease is actually the interplay between all of these variables together. What ends up being a little bit tricky though is when we get referrals from the psychology and mental health community, we're used to focusing on that psychological piece. But if a family comes into our office saying, my physician told me to come see you for support with my belly pains that aren't going away, but we're thinking of it through the lens of I'm going to address your depression and anxiety that we think is causing those belly pains, there's going to be a really strong disconnect there. We're taking it from the psychological angle, the family is taking it from the medical angle, and there's not going to be a bit of a buy-in, and it actually may inadvertently reinforce the mental health stigma that a lot of families feel already with these presentations. So instead of this chicken or the egg scenario or the either or, an evolving appreciation is that it doesn't matter which comes first. It actually does not matter whether the psychosocial symptoms or psychological pathology shows up before the medical presentation. And instead, we're recognizing that it, we can treat either first, and we can do both of them together at the same time. And in fact, even the term of comorbidity, oftentimes we'll talk about medical symptoms that are comorbid with psychiatric or mental health presentations. This implies that they are distinct entities with inherently different treatments. And we have to break that mentality and that perspective because it's not let me treat your mental health and then let me treat your physical conditions. They all have to be integrated together because they all are together. And we appreciate this in actual medical presentations. We understand, for example, in GI that in inflammatory bowel disease, immune dysregulation affects inflammation, but we also understand that immune dysregulation affects depression and mental health functioning too. So we're treating both things through the same perspective. And instead, I'm encouraging us to take a shift of centralizing the treatment through a transdiagnostic approach by focusing on behavioral implementation and change. And this, in fact, addresses the interaction between GI symptoms and psychosocial factors a little bit more effectively. 
So as we evolve this appreciation, the schematic ends up looking a little bit more reliably like this. And we're gonna dive into all of these sections in a little bit more detail, but this is how we should be conceptualizing psychosocial factors as it pertains to medical health throughout the developmental lifespan. There are multiple systems that go into effect what's experiencing in our brain, what's affecting our gut brain microbiome, which I'll talk about just momentarily, and the reciprocal interaction between both of these. But the broad key points that we know and we've understood from much of our research in terms of the gut microbiome is that psychosocial factors play a role by modulating the gut sensory, motor, and immune functioning and the relationship within that domain, the HPA access and the CNS modulation of that gut stimuli, and also by influencing the microbiota and inflammatory pathways. So taking a little bit of a deeper dive now into that microbiome. So what exactly is the gut microbiome? The gut microbiome has been conceptualized as a highly, highly complex microbial community made up of bacteria, fungi, viruses, protozoa. And we understand and appreciate that it is shaped by multiple factors, typically genetic, geographical, environmental. And it's actually formed and colonized from in utero, usually finalized around the age of three. Now, of course, this can still be moderated um, throughout the course of their life, and you can change your gut microbiome, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But most of it is actually colonized by the age of three, which, of course, has broad implications for neonatology and early childhood researchers. The microbiome protects against pathogens and reinforces the mucosal lining and the barrier that exists between our gut and the broader system. We have appreciated the strong role for intestinal permeability and its implication in terms of inflammatory bowel disease and various psychiatric presentations as well. And the gut microbiome has a fairly crucial role in maintaining that as well. And as I list here, the gut microbiome is implicated in many, many medical conditions, psychiatric presentations, including a diversity of GI presentations, as well as obesity, neurodegenerative conditions, psychiatric presentations of panic disorder, OCD, depression, anxiety, chronic pain, and many others that I'm sure you can find within your specific areas as well. What we understand in a little bit more detail in terms of the overlap, and this is another schematic by Cryon et al. from a fantastic anal uh, review of physiology from 2019, is this is a direct linking connection between our neural circuits that exist within our brain within the limbic system, connecting via the central nervous system down to the gut via the vagus nerve. And this is a little bit of an overview here in terms of those communication patterns between the enteric nervous system, that second brain that exists within our digestive system, as well as the back and forth reciprocal interconnection for that. So the pathways that are involved for this, as you can see, if we take an even deeper dive within to the microbiome composition itself, Looking here, you're able to see a complex pattern of metabolic pathways, immune functioning, endocrine implications, as well as the vagus nerve activation going back and forth. This is a little bit more of a complex um, directional signaling diagram that was uh, 
published within a great review of functional abdominal pain that came out this past year. I know this may be hard to see on your screen at home. So if you scan this QR code, it will actually bring you directly to the Nature Review article. And you can take a little bit of a closer look in terms of all of that. But the way this is simplified in this complexity is that the sympathetic nervous system directly communicates with the enteric nervous system in the gut, and all of these symptoms regulate GI functions, including motility, secretion, and that intestinal permeability that I just talked about. It's also interesting if you take a closer look at these pathways here, and I know that the areas of the brain may be a little bit more challenging to see, is you're able to actually notice that the hypersensitivity that we talk about within the gut is actually a direct connection from any point from the periphery, the gut sensitivity, as well as back and forth regulations pathways back to the brain. And areas of the amygdala, the insular cortex within the brain actually hardwires some of that emotion, sensory uh, perception as well, and it becomes ingrained in this constant back and forth memory that lives within our gut back to our brain as well. How does this develop over the course of your lifespan? What are the important factors that contribute to this? This is from that same nature review from this past year. And I really love this description in terms of longitudinal implications of these sensitizing medical events and or factors that you can see up here that go on to affect our central sensitization process, the sense of hypervigilance, that pathway activation between the gut and the brain and hypersensitivity and dysmotility that are back-regulated between your functional GI presentation sometimes in this case, but also disease activity elsewhere. And what I really point out here are the role of early life events and the sensitizing psychosocial events and factors that are indicated here. And the, the circular uh, point that I circle right here in terms of family stress, parenting factors, early childhood abuse, as you can recognize, these are highly connected to the role of adverse childhood experiences. And for, for all of us, we certainly appreciate the role of these ACEs on what they have in terms of long-term implications for the gut, but also for mental health and physical health in general. It's been uh, generated generated in the literature multiple times over that the higher degree of exposure to more frequent ACEs has greater likelihood of impairment throughout your life, both regards to physical functioning as well as mental health functioning. So the theory behind this as it pertains to the gut microbiome is that in fact your gut and your brain pathways are being further activated from these early adverse experiences. So when children experience childhood trauma within the first few years of their life, it's actually changing the processing within their microbiome and it's changing the relationship and it's changing the neural pathways, which uh, certainly makes a very, very strong case for prevention interventions and broader societal change. So, why, why are we talking about this as a pediatric psychologist? Why am I here discussing this today? And what we know, as Dr. Himes mentioned in his introduction, the goal of these interventions is to appreciate the role of psychogastroenterology. And psychogastroenterology is an evolving field that highlights the strong overlap between gut and brain activity and the necessity for incorporating these practices 
embedded in GI programs. And when we talk about chronic GI conditions, whether they're disorders of gut-brain interaction, as are most commonly represented in this literature, or inflammatory bowel disease or other chronic GI conditions, it is essential and best practice to deliver this through the lens of psychosocially informed care. So what is psychogastroenterology? This new exciting word and developing field. We are meant to apply effective psychological techniques to actually change physical presentations of GI conditions. Why do we do this? We know that people who have access to psychogastroenterology interventions within the course of their programs actually show decreased healthcare utilization and decreased symptom burden. And as we've talked about, if we're able to intervene with that a little bit earlier on, we give the opportunity for patients and families to gain more control of their conditions with decreased burden down the road. And how do we do this exactly? Within the course of our interventions, and I'll talk specifically what they look like in a little bit, I am targeting abdominal pain, visceral hypersensitivity, and GI motility through psychological interventions themselves. And by doing this, we're facilitating increased coping, resilience, and self-regulation skills, particularly for those with chronic medical presentations. So what do some of these therapies look like? If we look at this concept of brain-gut psychotherapies, right? I'm gonna help distinguish why this is different than general community child mental health. So if we take the problem of a, a patient or a child that we're experiencing with these chronic uh, physical sensations, pain, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, uh, rumination, food sensitivities, particularly within many of our kids. And then of course, naturally, no one feels excited to wake up every morning and feel these sensations. Right? The, the sensations that I felt when jumping out of that plane, skydiving, that was short-lived. And then the endorphins took over and I was ready to hug that guy so much for getting me to the ground safely. But imagine what it would be like for a child waking up each day knowing that their body was going to feel that way all day long because of what was happening in their body and feeling nervous and feeling anxious about those things. This is not an overreaction and it's not a weird response. So we of course start to tackle the behavioral avoidance that sometimes goes into experiencing these symptoms as well. And our broad goals are to reduce their actual physical symptoms, increase their functioning and increase their ability to utilize coping skills accordingly. So what are we targeting and what are our actual interventions? What does brain gut psychotherapy look like if we're looking at it? So the most evidence-based research approach uh, for clinical interventions has been cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a present uh, focused short-term intentional intervention that uh, the provider and the family and the child collectively co-construct goals that they're hoping to change. It utilizes the interconnection between physical symptoms, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and recognizing that if we're able to intervene and change any one of those systems at play, all of the other ones will change as well in this reciprocal connection. You may have seen this represented in terms of like a triangle of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. As it applies to medical symptoms, we recognize that the medical symptoms are highly integrated into this model as well, and we appreciate those too. This is not us telling kids that they just need to think about things differently, right? You're never going to find me telling a middle school student who is afraid that they're not going to be able to maintain their bowel continence within their day to tell them that they're overreacting or they're just thinking about it the wrong way. 
we want to actually be able to change their physiological sensations by giving them tools to change what's happening in their nervous system so the symptoms can actually happen a little bit less. We seek to reduce the magnification in terms of the fear and the worries that they think might happen and some of the predictions that have been informed by their past experiences. Unfortunately, for children who have experienced chronic stress and multiple traumas throughout their lifespan, it's very difficult for us to tell them that they're overreacting to things when their sense of safety and security has been challenged so greatly throughout their life. So we instead recognize on how we can actually shift what's physiologically happening in their body through some skill building as well. The next thing that has been highly evidence-based within the literature is this concept of gut-directed hypnotherapy. And for many of you who may be familiar with this literature or have worked with practitioners who have helped with uh, medical hypnosis in the past, you'll appreciate the profound effects of this. Uh, what we are realizing in the literature is that this directly affects visceral hypersensitivity and sensations as well. And how this works is you deliver post-hypnotic suggestions that actually mediate and improve gut, gut discomfort and increase the awareness on senses of confidence and coping skills that people are able to utilize. The same mechanism we believe is at play in terms of mindfulness-based interactions as well as we're calming down the body enough to be able to shift the focus and change their attention uh, in terms of reducing the sense of judgment and attempting to focus on things that are within their control. Biofeedback as well is uh, using technology and helping patients and families gain a little bit more conscious awareness of things that they may not usually be able to feel like is in their control, such as heart rate, stress response, all of these things that we have actually appreciated quite well are implicated in terms of the communication between the gut and the brain. Acceptance and commitment therapy is a type of cognitive behavioral therapy that recognizes that patients should be leading their lives based on their values of the things that they care about and recognizing that oftentimes we have to accept adverse experiences and there are many things that we're not able to change. If there has been any effect of the model of acceptance and commitment therapy, it's been what's been happening throughout this last year. There have been things that have been profoundly out of everyone's control and we haven't been able to tell people that they're overreacting to things. We haven't told people that the things that they're experiencing should just be thought about in a different way social isolation, separation from peers, the significant psychosocial effects that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on families is profound. So we're telling them that uh, we need to still find the course of the values that get them through. And a lot of uh, the, the research throughout this past year so far has shown that resilience building when coupled with acceptance and commitment therapy strategies has been quite helpful for coping. Um, moving along in terms of sleep hygiene, we recognize that sleep is uh, tre tremendously implicated in terms of gut-brain functioning, as well as across the span of our chronic health conditions as well. And this is, again, a chicken or the egg situation is multiple variables affect sleep. So children who are experiencing ongoing pain symptoms or worries or anxiety are going to have difficulty sleeping. And those who have difficulty sleeping are also going to show up with more chronic GI symptoms that interfere with their functioning as well. Okay. So a note on anxiety. This is often one of the things that comes up in our evaluations. 
Children with GI conditions do have anxiety, right? We know that. It is very commonly represented in high amounts in the literature. Um, we know that there's more anxiety, more internalizing problems of depression anxiety as well. Uh, they're going to show up with more tendencies of perfectionism as it pertains to school functioning, lower quality of life, more shame and more stigma associated with their symptoms. However, we wanna be really careful of attributing everything to anxiety because what ends up happening is the message gets relayed of when we talk to kids about their anxiety in the same conversation as we're talking to them about their gut symptoms, there's this block that goes up. It's like, this is not because of my anxiety. I am not anxious in these situations. And we want them to know it's not just anxiety. First of all, ever saying just anxiety is a very dismissive thing to people who experience incredible amounts of anxiety. But we have the opportunity now to recognize that the psychosocial biological interplay is profound. So we can say, we know this is not just your anxiety, that this is affecting your gut on these levels. So how do we target this? What are we actually looking at when we're exploring specifically cognitive behavioral therapy, for example? This is a case of individuals, uh, this, this diagram right here models what it's like for people who are feeling really nervous and afraid of their symptoms. And there's a high degree of visceral hypersensitivity, anxiety about their symptoms, and then they begin to avoid related to experiencing those symptoms. Like the case before of a middle school student who was really afraid of experiencing <clears throat> bowel movements within the course of their school day they may avoid going to school because they're worried about experiencing their physiological sensations within the course of the day. So naturally over time, there has been the tendency to avoid things related to experiencing those GI sensations. This inadvertently will actually magnify the strength of the relationship between the gut and the brain and reinforce the presence of those behaviors. And this feedback loop kind of then ensues. So what we target in cognitive behavioral therapy is that avoidance, is that sense of hypervigilance, helping them see that their body is taking a microphone to their insides and it is magnifying it to a much higher level to them. And how can we give them tools to actually lower the volume and decrease the intensity of what they're experiencing? And then many times we also know a common mechanism at play here is this concept of catastrophizing. This comes back to the um, idea of cognitive processes of how we take in uh, the physiological information that we're experiencing in the body and then what we interpret it and how we perceive it. So the idea of if I was to have stomach pain in the middle of my school day, this would be the worst thing that would ever happen and I would never be able to go back to school. We don't want to dismiss the feelings that the children are having about these symptoms, but we also want them to know that there's many other sides to that picture, that we can actually note that a lot of kids experience this and get through the day. And there's a good chance that they may experience these symptoms without significant impairment as well, and that they're also seeing that the tools that they're learning within the course of their work will be able to be successfully applied to help them get through the course of their day with higher functioning. Our primary target is always functioning. You're going to hear this from pediatric psychologists forever, is that we are focusing on functioning first. And a lot of the times this is very important for us to implicate for children and families because they will frequently say, well, I will return to this when I'm feeling better. And we're hoping that they're able to see you will feel better when you return to this because actually returning to that enables 
they got to uh, get used to that a little bit more. This was uh, highlighted even in, during last week's grand rounds when we're talking about return to functioning after concussions. The more uh, profound, uh, longer amount of time that you're out for school absence after a concussion is going to implicate and affect your recovery period as well for there. So this is why you heard us talk about the best practices of getting back as soon as safely possible to functioning because we wanna maintain that functioning goal. This is a little bit of that cyclic relationship, right? where you experience a normal GI symptom, perhaps nausea, perhaps pain. Maybe this happened after an episode of food poisoning. Uh, maybe there's something that comes up in terms of just a normal gastric or GI virus that you're experiencing. Perhaps you even had an episode where you got sick or nauseous during the school day and you vomited in the middle of class. This is something that of course becomes hardwired in your brain as that memory. And then when those sensations come back, when you feel perhaps a hint of digestive discomfort as we all actually do throughout the day, but for most of us, it doesn't kind of resonate to the level of magnitude and fear. It just kind of goes on and experiences the fact of normal digestion. We may begin to say, oh no, here it is, it's coming back again. Then those extreme emotions start to develop. You're gonna start feeling frustrated, angry, anxious, nervous, fearful, and that is going to activate your sympathetic nervous system. And that arousal is going to come up as well. You have increased heart rate, difficulty breathing. And this is, of course, then going to circulate back to the gut via that bidirectional relationship that we discussed before and implicate worsening symptoms. And then the cycle goes on and on and on. And we know that when behavioral avoidance kicks in, these are the things that are going to magnify that presentation as well. And then, of course, worsening mood and worsening psychopathology that can come forth too. So what do we do with this? Pediatric psychologists, and just this is kind of the model of pediatric health in general, there's a lot of interconnected pieces, right? This is not, let me just hand you these tools and go forth. Kids and families exist within so many different environmental systems around them. We see the effects of this in terms of their school, in terms of their socializations, their ability to engage in extracurricular activities, the food they eat, the way they eat. Um, all of these, these factors contribute to the maintenance of symptoms and then things that can be helpful as well as things that can be harmful. So within the course of our evaluation and our treatment, we are always paying attention to these rotating gears. And we don't think that any one of these exists within isolation. And I think that's where the direction of, of medicine is going, is recognizing that all of these things interconnect and kind of drive the other together. So as a pediatrician, when you are trying to get family buy-in for this, it's incredibly important to say why you are referring someone. And you have to believe this, right? We have to be able to say, if you are making a community pediatrician referral to our subspecialty GI practice, first of all, thank you. Uh, secondly, say why, like what are you hoping to get out of that evaluation? What are the reasons why you are saying the things that you're showing me want me to get further answers about this, this, and this, and these are going to be my questions for the GI specialists at Connecticut Children's. This is why I'm asking them these things, and this is what we're going to do with that information. It's what we say within our GI department if we recommend that someone gets an endoscopy or a colonoscopy. We explain to them 
why we think that procedure is indicated exactly. And we want kids to actually understand this. We want them to have their buy-in of recognizing what's the point of this extra visit? Why are they going to do this test? Um, if you're saying that someone should go to physical therapy for physical reconditioning of their system, explain to them what we hope to get out of that. And these are the goals that are often co-constructed between the physical therapists and the patients themselves. But what are we hoping to do this? Why are we asking them to put in this effort? Why are we going to seek a, a consult with a registered dietitian? And now we can say, we're doing this because we actually are targeting those connections within the body, that back and forth relationship. And sometimes it actually just helps to have a script. So here's something that you can say. I know it may seem strange that I'm asking you to see a therapist for your bathroom issues. The reason I'm prescribing this treatment is because we know that learning certain psychological techniques can actually improve the digestive symptoms that you have been experiencing better than other medicines we have. These things are not in your head. They're very real and they're making it hard for you to enjoy the things that you used to do. And by taking the time to educate families as well as kids at their level about the gut-brain access, it becomes incredibly empowering to them. And you have to believe this, right? We have to, we have to own this conceptualization. And the reason you saw me highlight a couple of key words there is families really take to the idea of having things prescribed to them. And we have to start conceptualizing mental health as a prescription, not as an option. We've seen this in cases of children who learn socio-emotional techniques within the course of their school curriculum, and it's not this extra fluffy thing that they should learn on the side. Children do better, children strive better. So when they hear physicians talking about this as part of the medical illness conceptualization, it's profoundly impactful, and I strongly encourage the opportunity to bring this into your conversations more frequently. So how does, this, how does this actually impact your conceptualization? It's very helpful to deliver a biopsychosocial informed conceptualization for one. Use what patients care about to make small meaningful change instead of avoidance. So if you have a patient who's telling you, I am nowhere close to going back to school, but I really miss my robotics club and I really miss being on the basketball team. Start with that. Say to the school, yeah, we know that they may not be back full time, but let's see if we can get them into the building. The first step over that doorway into the school building may allow them to see, okay, I'm feeling some things, but I can get through this. Meaningful change. Do they want to be a better friend? Would they like to be a better sibling? Do they want to be able to focus more on their academics because their symptoms have made it harder for them to do so? Take their lead with the things that are important to them. We have to involve the patient and the family together in this treatment planning. Nothing's going to be successful if we tell them, go see the psychologist and then talk to me when you're done. We have to see that it's this co-constructed and co-developed plan and ask them to teach back to you why you're doing this. Now, of course, with children, we're not going to necessarily draw out the microbiome uh, gut-brain access, right? Uh, for certain high school students, I've actually found them to be incredibly interested in this concept. And I will give them highly complex scientific articles because they like it and they enjoy learning about it. But we have to make it so it feels real to them. And a lot of the times kids are learning about the fight or flight response in biology or science classes, and they understand what they're like, what they feel like in different situations. So we'll often say, imagine that you stepped out of this office right now and in my waiting room, there was a giant bear sitting there. What do you think you would feel in your body? What would be that rush of intensity? And some of them, 
very few will say like, oh, cute bear. But most of them say, oh my gosh, I'd be a little bit scared. I'd feel a little bit nervous about that. And then you draw on that physiological awareness to say, well, when we're exposed to different things each day of our lives in different situations, that's the effect that it has on our GI system as well. Sometimes it'll make things go out super quickly. Sometimes it'll make things slow down and stand still. And other times it'll make it come up this way. And this is a very simplified version, but it's basically what happens in terms of the ex exacerbation of the sympathetic and autonomic nervous system. We want to find a relevant reference or a metaphor that works for this. Um, Dr. Rachel Zofnis, who delivered a Grand Rounds within this forum a few months ago, gave a great discussion. And if you didn't listen to it, I encourage you to go back uh, in terms of applying pediatric pain metaphors for increasing children's buy-in. And you take, you take current culture, right? So if, if any of you have, have uh, been watching WandaVision on Disney+, Plus, uh, I'm not gonna spoil anything here, but we know that Wanda Maximoff's uh, powers are exacerbated by her experience of different emotions. This is a really easy way in terms of getting kids who are into this world to say, Look at what happened to Wanda's powers completely out of her control sometimes when she was overwhelmed with things in her environment, when she was overtaken by intensity. And then you draw that back to say, that's what's happening inside your body. That's what's happening completely unintentionally and unaware to you between your brain and your intestines. And that's what's making these things happen. It's like that electromagnetic radiation within your body. Uh, Harry Potter has this direct connection. He feels the pain in his scar when he is threatened or when he is overwhelmed, uh, all of these things. And we also like to say these symptoms are kind of like riding a bike. Sometimes once you start going it, it's hard to unlearn the symptoms, but it is not impossible to get off of that bike. We want them to be able to see that just because their body has learned how to do these things, they can still stop the bike. Uh, we also previously used to always talk about volume knobs. Uh, many kids are not aware of what volume knobs are these days. So I say, pretend that you're listening to some different types of music and what are the experiences that might make your sensations a little bit louder and what are the things that can make them feel a little bit lower. Many times you're gonna be greeted with a question of, well, I experience these symptoms even when I'm not feeling stress and even when I'm not worried or even when I'm not panicked or nervous about things. And I encourage you to utilize what I call as the Disney World test, or you can you know, generalize this to any amusement park or any big places where the kids have been and say to them, what did you notice about your symptoms? Particularly if they've been around for a while, what did you notice about your symptoms when you went on a family trip? What did you notice as you were getting ready to go on the airplane? What did you notice while you were in Disney World themselves? And a large percentage of our patients with these vulnerabilities will actually say, my symptoms were really bad when I, went to, when I was in Disney World. I couldn't get on any of the rides. I had to keep leaving. And we know that this is true. Our bodies do not often distinguish between happy stress and sad and anxious stress. Of course, we know that the perception and our personal attributions of stressful situations matter a lot, but sometimes when we are experiencing excitement, our bodies still take notice. And it is not uncommon for us to hear stories of kids who have had their family vacations completely ruined. And we'll say, look, you were literally in the happiest place on earth, supposedly, and these were the symptoms that you were still experiencing even when you were there. And this brings this home a little bit more for these families. I would caution us against, when we talk about therapy, trying to find the answer through mental health. 
families get very frustrated when they come to therapists and when they are referred to therapists to figure out what's really happening. And that is this subtle sort of stigma that exists of, well, we don't know what's physically happening. If we can't see it on the blood results, if we can't see it on the imaging scans, then there must be something mental health related. There must be this trauma that we just haven't gotten to yet. Sometimes there is. But a lot of the times, this is not actually based by evidence whatsoever. And there is no data to support that there's this underlying anxiety or pre-existing stress that often triggers these conditions. And in fact, what ends up happening is this will further isolate families because they're going to get so tired of having a mental health professional come in and talk with them about what they must not be telling us. This will come out in the course of a positive psychotherapeutic relationship. If there are things that are related to the effects in their body, it will come up. But we do no, uh, no reward to families by continuing to harp on this thing that there must be something they're not telling us. It's crucial to partner with other people. And these divisions and these specialties are highly implicated in gut-brain conditions. Uh, certainly registered dietitians, uh, the role of integrative medicine, our psychiatry partners, occupational health in terms of refeeding and supporting kids' ability to kind of uh, change their awareness and their engagement with their environment and their sensitivities, physical therapy in terms of retraining their body and their systems, and of course, care coordination from a preventative model as well. We have to focus on prevention. If there's anything that we're talking about throughout this discussion, it's the role for prevention. Hope, focusing on socio-emotional learning opportunities, early identification of psychopathology and developmental challenges, especially in chronic illness. And we need to shift away from an achievement-oriented mentality that focuses kind of grades and academic success above everything else and moving towards value. Societally shifting and focusing on food security and also nutrition attention is going to be highly indicated for the gut microbiome. And I think we're going to see this further development in this world of nutritional psychiatry where there's an incredibly rewarding and encouraging amount of research coming out in terms of what we feed ourselves and how it fuels our symptoms that we experience. Early collaboration with a pediatric psychologist and embedded mental health services within your practices or within your subspecialty practices cannot be overstated enough in terms of the opportunities to reduce healthcare utilization and improve symptom management and also screen for these psychosocial vulnerabilities that are going to be further impactful. Many of you may be sitting there watching this and saying, but I don't have a GI psychologist. What do I do? Um, you should develop a relationship with about two or three community-based mental health practitioners to uh, develop this pathway, to develop an open dialogue and discussion about how to treat these cases in a way that you know that they're gonna be well-treated and collaborated. Uh, simply referring patients to mental health services and saying, I hope it goes well, is not going to work and it's inadvertently going to perpetuate that stigma again. And of course, if you would like further discussion about that for any cases, I'm, we're always happy to, to talk about that within our subspecialty GI clinic. Here's a resource that has been developed by the Rome Foundation in terms of how to talk about these therapies. Uh, if you scan this code, it will bring you right to this pamphlet, uh, which is on their website. And it's additionally listed in some resources that I have that I'll present to you. 
Uh, I'm going to uh, skip over this, uh, but this talks a little bit more about how we can adapt current community-based mental health services and apply it to GI psychology principles. But, but spoiler alert, there are things you don't need specifically a GI psychologist sometimes, but there are things that actually adapt quite well. Uh, this QR code uh, lists some multiple resources that you can get in terms of accessing psychogastroenterology services, as well as multiple references and additional referral opportunities. And I'm going to just uh, put the other slides on here as well, as I leave some time for, for questions here as well. But if you scan this, this QR code, you will be able to uh, get a whole list that I've compiled of multiple resources, and uh, uh, both for you as providers, as well as for families. Thank you so much. I'll pause right now. Thank you so much for that outstanding presentation. There's been a few questions that have come in. One question is, what do you suggest when a parent refuses to partner with you and the child in preventing ongoing ACEs related to how the parents behave with or towards the child? It's a fantastic question. And it's one that, that we see quite often. And I think what we do is we partner with the systems that are involved, with the families. If we see opportunities for additional coordination, we meet them with where they're at. We recognize the services that they need at that time. If a family is in crisis, we have to think back to their hierarchy of needs. We have to recognize what they need at that point. And a lot of times there's going to be a strong disconnect in terms of us saying to family, the environment that your child's in right now is going to strongly affect them decades from now when they may be thinking, that's wonderful, but I need to know how to get my kid out the door so I can get to work so I can afford some food for our family. So we have to intervene at the level that they need in that point. After that, once there's the security, once there's the stable relationships in place and the basic needs met, then we start to talk about what that family wants for that child, what they envision for their children's growth, opportunities that we have to partner with them but it's very hard and this is where we do need to kind of broaden the relationships beyond just a one-to-one -one connection and we do need to get other stakeholders involved with that too thank you another question uh, praise for the diagram in the thapper 2020 article wonderful presentation when you uncover trauma in your patients with functional gi disorders do you think you need to target the trauma directly in order to reduce symptoms it's an excellent question and one something that comes up a lot in terms of, of GI psychology when there is such profound co-occurring presentations. Um, not always, not always, especially when targeting the trauma is going to involve a little bit of a lengthy process. I will call it out and I will recognize it and I think it's important for us to do so. If a family and a child is endorsing the trauma and the link is there and it is very clear, we want them to have access to evidence-based interventions for recognizing how to treat that trauma. There is an incredible wealth of literature supporting the role of trauma-informed psychotherapies, specifically um, trauma-focused CBT for kids as well as cognitive reprocessing therapy. Uh, we want them to have access to those interventions, but we don't need them to have access to those interventions to increase their functioning first. 
So for kids who may have experienced school-related trauma, they may be really difficult uh, to convince to focus on functioning, to return to school. We want to partner with the school to say, how do we create a safety environment within their school that we get them in the building so we start to kind of disentangle some of those things? We can simultaneously work on that. And it may not be something that I would do specifically within the course of a GI psychology relationship, and we would partner with a community-based trauma-focused therapist for that, but that does not mean that we can't directly target the other things. And actually, to the to the great credit of a lot of the trauma-focused interventions, there is a tremendous emphasis on recognizing the bodily sensations keying into what happens when you're reliving that narrative and experiencing those stories of recognizing how it shows up in the body. So they actually can complement each other quite well. Another question pertains to newborns. So how do you normalize newborn concerns? For example, if parents are overly concerned that their newborn might have stomach pain if they cry or they bring their knees to their belly or they miss a poop or poop every time they eat or they spit up and the color changes of the poop. So how do you recommend normalizing parental concerns around newborn GI? Yeah. I think this is this is where your relationships with your with your pediatricians become incredibly valuable because as as pediatricians this is the bread and butter this is discerning and deciphering between when physical presentations that show up in in newborns uh, are need of concern of intense further evaluation versus others that say this is your your child's uh, digestive system kind of warming up to the world. This is what they're experiencing. And there are a lot of opportunities in terms of incorporating infant massage, um, baby yoga, and uh, other things that actually can support the digestive system for newborns and help them feel a little bit more comfortable, but also definitely keying in to that parent-child newborn attachment relationship becomes crucial because we want parents to not feel overwhelmed and scared about their children's symptoms that they're naturally experiencing that interfere with their relationship building, but also key in with partners who can help them navigate what would require further investigation and what things they can kind of wait out a little bit more comfortably. Thank you. Um, for children who do not have excellent insurance, some people have very limited insurance. If they have limited insurance and they can't get access to services that you recommend or comparable services, what else could be done for limited insurance patients? That's, a, that's an excellent point. Uh, these services are highly specialized, right? As I, I wish I was able to stand here and tell you that there was an easily accessible psychogastroenterologist embedded in every GI practice across the country um, or that you had immediate access to one. Uh, we know that's not the reality and we know even just general mental health services are hard for families to come by. Uh, some of these resources that I list here are helpful places to start, but also that's where we then kind of gravitate back to the partnerships that exist within their world already. So talking to pediatricians, talking to embedded mental health professionals that might be within their system, but also utilizing the school. Uh, I've had fantastic working relationships with school counselors, uh, school psychologists, social workers embedded within their healthcare system already within the school-based system that can provide a lot of these tools. And I'll say to them, this is what we're targeting. This is what I'm gonna ask you to do within the course of your work. Of course, they may not be medical and chronic illness experts, but they're able to start giving them tools to directly target some of these interactions that we're seeking. Thank you for a truly outstanding presentation. It's nine o'clock, so we, we do need to wrap up, but it's our final um, question. Uh, potentially as a, to wrap things up, one question came up is how 
What would you do for a patient to address both GI and psychological issues? Which specialist would you recommend? And I know you gave some excellent resources. Yeah, and actually, if you can, I don't know if you are able to get to the last slide. Um, I, I lost my clicker control, but the very last one has some of that uh, back on here. And in terms of focusing, where do we start? I say we have to do both, right? We have to talk with a specialized gastroenterologist. We have to talk to the pediatricians and do the mental health at the same time. This is not an either or situation. And if there is mental health psychopathology significantly interfering with daily functioning, we have to address those things. And we have to treat significant depression. We have to treat significant anxiety, OCD, other overlapping presentations before we can think of it through the psychogastroenterology lens. And then we can also tackle both things from the same front after that. Uh, so again, thank you so much for having me today. I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to, to join you and talk about this topic. Again, please feel free to reach out to me directly via email with any concerns or questions or to our subspecialty uh, GI clinic to talk more about how we can help.